You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brady, and I'm in recovery from being right. That's right, I'm in recovery from having to be right. I come by it honestly. I mean, sometimes we Christians just have to be right about every last thing, right? I mean, I've spent my whole life with God. I was born not long after a blizzard in Colorado to a young couple on their first preaching ministry assignment. So when I was born into this family, um, I had been in the womb going to church. This particular small town in Colorado didn't have a building whenever we moved there. They met in a lodge. And so a lot of those times when I was in mom's womb, we were not in that building. But by the time I came, we were in that building and surviving a blizzard. So I I come by it honestly. You know, this lifetime spent with God, being someone who's been a minister for my whole life, who even has trained ministers at seminary for more than a decade, right? This coming to, to, to being in recovery over being right, I come by rather honestly. But... Do those things, any of those things, make me good? Let's turn in our Bibles, if you've got one, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. And if you can, wherever you're at, online or here in our space, stand with me for the reading of Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, and they rubbed them in their hands, and they ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. And there was a, synagogue, and there was a man in the synagogue whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him to see whether he might cure on the Sabbath so that they could find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he got up and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. Now we get two Sabbath day stories here from Luke in this biography, this account of Jesus' life. And Sabbath simply is Saturday. These are church day stories, for a ba- lack of a better way to describe it. Stories in a, a gathering like this that would be something like an informal school to study the Word of God, to take a look at those stories, those legal codes, those prophecies from far ago and long away. So in this informal school, there are some Pharisees. And they've shown up, and we can, we can think of Pharisees as like elite scholars, well-trained people in the Hebrew Bible. So you might have a lot of different kinds of teachers that might come to a church like today or to a synagogue like we're looking at in this old story. But these are some that are quite elite. They are very well trained. Now they thought of themselves as separatists, as I've mentioned to you in recent weeks. They are militant in their ability to find uh, details in the law and to practice them, to live them out. They're very skilled in the peculiars of the law. Now, they lay a pretty amazing trap for Jesus. And I can say this, because I've already told you, I'm in recovery from being right. I know how some of these folks will think, not that I am by any means any kind of elite scholar, but I've been around them. And I know what they're like, I know how they're able to function, and I'm not that caliber. But these folks have laid an elaborate trap for Jesus. Now I say they're, they're guys because they all would have been guys. No women. I mean, you can look a few chapters later in uh, Luke chapter 8. Jesus was different from, from this crew because women were around him. Women were very close to his teaching. And we'll look at that some next week. Jesus broke the mold. But this group of guys was watching closely so that they might trap Jesus. And we know that's the case. I don't even think Jesus needed divine power to know this. In verse 7, that's what they're up to. Now the scripture does say that he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were up to. Well, when it comes to understanding these rules, it's pretty distant for us. These Sabbath day rules we're, we're not Jews. We are not, for the most part, people that have insight into this. So I have to kind of do a little director's cut and go in a little deeper for us today. So the Sabbath is this very sacred, holy day where uh, you were to rest. You were to take it easy. It was a 24-hour holiday every week to set yourself away from work to where you did not involve yourself in work, to not even prepare food. In fact, when it comes to what Jews were known for, these were the two things they were known for. As outsiders looked at them, they knew them as, oh, those are the people that don't work on Saturday. They have all these rules about what all they can and cannot do on Saturday. And they're also the people that practice kosher food laws. Very careful thought to how food is prepared and what goes into it and what doesn't go into it for religious reasons. So, That's what we're talking about with the Sabbath and with these food rules that we're dealing with. The Pharisees, 
in our text today see the disciples breaking one of those rules right they see the disciples breaking it and they they kind of already have jesus under surveillance anyway but they see them in a, in something that we don't quite understand they're walking through the fields grabbing some grain and eating it okay for us that might sound a little bit like stealing. If you're walking through somebody else's field and you're taking something that's not yours, it seems like stealing. We, we've asked one of our neighbors, we found out from one of our neighbors, that they're okay with peaches being taken off their tree. And we were, we, when we first moved here, we were so wanting to pluck one of those peaches. And within a week, they were all gone. But our neighbor said, no, you could have them. Well, here, it's not illegal from the law in Deuteronomy 23, verse 15, to take some grains, to take some heads of grain and to eat them. No problem. Well, what happens is the Pharisees see something more to this. They see the disciples getting that grain and eating it. And they have maybe the quickest powwow of all. Scripture doesn't tell us this. They get privately together and say, okay, this is it. And they pull their text together. All right, these are the ones we could quote. And what might Jesus say? You see, an elite scholar is not going to ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. Right? They want to map it out and to know in order to entrap people in their own point. And so they think, okay, well, he could bring up that thing about gleaning. Because fields were also something of a food pantry. You would leave the edges of your grain field unharvested so that the poor, so that widows could come and collect out of that field and be able to eat. And they said, I bet he'll bring that up. And so they're ready for their question. The powwow's over. No one really sees it because it's just kind of some head nods and shakes. And they point to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And as we unclick pause, we know that they're getting their pious faces on and they're not trying to be too eager because they don't want to be perceived as judging another, right? So it's just an innocent question. Why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, we know that they probably were already clocking the miles knowing that he could only go a half a mile on a given Sabbath, and this is the one that they actually get him on, that they're giddy about. Well, with us, as we hear this, we're still a little confused. Why is this illegal? It's not illegal to pluck grain. So we have to press pause again and kind of consult with one another. What is going on here? Well, what they're planning to catch him on is that the disciples not only plucked grain, they winnowed it, they got the chaff off that grain, blew it away, and then ate it. So they harvested, winnowed, prepared a meal, and ate it. So that's what they're ready to get Jesus on. So there stands Jesus. What is he going to go to? What's going to be his go-to passage? Will he point out that it's okay to harvest? Will he point out about the gleaning in Ruth? No. He picks something they don't expect at all. He flips around the accusation and says to these people who are the experts 
of the text, have you not read the story? Oh, well, certainly we have read the story. We know the story. Which one? The story about David. When David came in to the holy place, came into the tabernacle, and asked for the showbread, asked for the bread that was prepared once a week, fresh loaves set out on display that represented the presence of God. And he was hungry, and he asked to eat it. And the priest gave it to him. Now that's bread only for priests. But not only did David eat it, but he gave it to his companions. He wasn't even honest about what was going on. He said, oh, I'm running. I'm on a mission. Excuse me, I'm on a mission from the king. When actually he's running away from the then king at the time. Well, they're dumbfounded. They don't know what to say. This is not the text they anticipated him bringing up at all. In Luke 14, we get another story. It's a Sabbath story where it says that they're speechless. It says that they're uncertain what to respond. Here, it doesn't even say that at all because they are completely floored. There's nothing that can be said. And then Jesus does something even more significant. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. So not only has he taken their text and thrown it in their face and said, look, King David broke the rules and it was okay. He associates himself with King David, making this messianic claim, and he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Let's just say their jaws were dropping at this point. They don't know what to do with this guy. And the story pretty much ends, and Luke throws another one at us. Don't you love this? You get two Sabbath stories tucked close together, and uh, it gives you a sense that what Jesus was doing was more than teaching in these Sabbath gatherings. He was upending closely held assumptions. He was pressing people to practice their faith rather than just talk about it. So here, in this second story, we know that they're looking for an accusation against him. We know they've already spotted, maybe even planted, a man with a withered hand, muscles atrophied, unable to function, and they're watching to see if he might perhaps heal this man. And Jesus knows their thoughts. He calls the man forward, and he says this, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Which is lawful? To do good or to harm? To save a life or to destroy a life? And he looks at every eyeball in the room. Every pair of eyeballs. He gazes at all of it. No one speaks up to answer this question from Jesus. And then he has the man stretch out his hand and it miraculously heals before their eyes. No magic trick. The hand that was not functionable now is able to function, and they see it. So what is their response to this? Verse 11, fury, being beside themselves in anger, and beginning to plot what they might do to Jesus. You see, whenever professors sometimes spend their time living in their heads like the Pharisees do, 
sometimes these lines get blurred about what really is good. When we look at this, the thing that strikes me is how different it is from the mob in Luke 4, his hometown mob that wants to kill him. They're driven by emotion. They immediately go to kill Jesus. But not this group. This group is more well-respected. They're looking for just the right time of when they can do away with Jesus. They're going to plot things of how they might get rid of this. Now, we're familiar with this. You've probably had experiences in your life where you've overheard things. You've overheard what might be about to happen at work. Or maybe someone has misspoken to a middle manager or spoken to an administrator, and some information gets out that wouldn't otherwise get out. Maybe you've been even a participant in it. You've entertained those words. You've been a part of those plans. Well, that's the story that we're in the middle of. And, you know, for what, what an amazing group of stories it is, the point is obvious. This is not a complicated point to find. It's stated clearly. Do good. Feed hungry people. Focus in on healing and saving lives, not about destroying lives. It's not complicated at all, right? It's straightforward. It's there. But that kind of goodness filter is not always there in our lives, is it? That goodness filter, that check, that principle of, is this really good? Doesn't always apply to, oh, I don't know, our driving. Or maybe how we treat one another at work. Or our marriages. We don't often apply this, this principle of what is good in the conducting of our business or of the posting of things online, or when we're talking to another coworker about another coworker. Sometimes, and I don't know about you, but sometimes our aim is just to do what's accepted, to do what's acceptable, to do what's technically legal and kind of above any kind of reproach or being able to be convicted. And we think, we're following Jesus, but we don't really have the health or the goodness of others as the filter on our heart, as the filter for our actions. We've set those things aside. Well, the difficulties that are posed by this problem and these stories are not easily resolved by us nodding our heads and knowing that they're true because we see something very real that following Jesus is different than just following the rules. Because here in this case, Jesus breaks the rules, stretches the rules, in order to lift up the rules, to point to the premise behind the rules, to help us see this ethical and moral principle of doing good to others, all others whether we like them or not, whether they're a part of our group or not. And I don't know why it is that historically sometimes religious people are the most given to rancor and, and mobs, where we use our power sometimes to promote death, where we generate thoughts of hatred 
and condemnation, forgetting that Jesus didn't start a war of hate, but a rebellion of love. Forgetting about Jesus and his path in this life of surrendering his life, of being convicted by a misapplication of God's own rules, and being okay with taking that path because he was so committed to us. You know, we have to think about this because how we understand Jesus and how we understand following Jesus will dictate how we actually follow Jesus. So, let me say it this way. If we, if we understand the person of Jesus in one way, that will affect how tomorrow we live following Jesus. So take, for example, the Pharisees. If they see Jesus, if they identify the person of Jesus as someone to compete with, a competitor, then the game will not be following Jesus. It will be about victory. It will be about winning. It'll be about finding the right scripture. So if they just see Jesus as someone who is a competitor, that's the way they will approach things. If we see each other as children of God, people in this room, people outside of this room, that's going to change how we treat those other people. What we do and what we do not do sometimes is focused in on doing the right thing or avoiding doing the wrong thing. And if our focus is entirely on those rules, then what we'll become is a rule follower. We'll feel defeated when we can't fulfill that rule. And we'll feel victorious and prideful when we're able to keep that particular rule. But Jesus, he showed us something beyond those rules where he was willing to be rejected by a misapplication of those rules, willing to die in order to show his love for us. Well, I think the shock of this for me, I don't know what it is for you, but the shock of these stories for me is that being right is really not the same thing as being good. We can be correct on a lot of things and not be good. And for me, I've been wanting to let go of that need to be right, to be correct about everything. Instead, more deeply at my core, be good. To do what is the right thing, the good thing, what is the most beneficial thing for others. And that's something that I think is challenging. It's hard to live out because sometimes I'm pretty convinced of my own rightness. And I have to close my mouth. And listen, because whether we're insiders or outsiders, taking a moment to, to, assume, and to, to assume that we might be wrong and to assume that someone else might be right puts us in a more humble posture, a receiving posture. And that can happen in a marriage. That can happen in a friendship. That can happen with a difficult boss or an obstinate coworker, or even with our very best friend that we're given to all kinds of arguments over. Here, these Pharisees, they help us. I know we've been hard on them again today, but they help us. Because they weren't silent, they did ask Jesus questions. And that allowed Jesus the opportunity to provide deeper illumination. 
The problem was not them asking questions. The problem was not them wanting to learn and wanting to grow and not understanding. How are you understanding the Sabbath now? That's not the problem. The problem for them is the same thing that's a problem for me, for Christians, or maybe even for professors, is that you're more concerned to be right than to do what's good. That's when it becomes a problem. Learning and growing, not a problem. Being able to let go and see that God might be doing a new thing can be challenging. Because I don't, I, I'm kind of given to a preservatism. Let's just preserve it. Let's keep it. Let's protect it. And it leaves no room for God to come into my life and say, no, Brady, we're going to be doing some new things with you. We've still got work to do. You're not finished yet. You're not as right as you think you are. Are you willing to trust me, says God, and let me take you into new places? Because we can't be a group of people that are just focused on getting the goods on others, but on doing good. And thankfully, if you're unfamiliar with First Christian, that's who we are. We're a group of people very much focused on doing good. This is not your normal group of religious people. This is a group of people who is sold out to the idea that our mission is to follow Jesus. That's it. And we invite you, we welcome you to come and stumble your way along in following Jesus. To, to learn what it's like. To make mistakes and realize that's okay. I can learn from those mistakes. Let's give thanks to God in prayer for these stories that have challenged us today. God, thank you for being a good God for being God that really puts up with a lot from us. It doesn't matter the millennium or the century or the year or the minute. We really haven't changed too much. And so, God, we just ask that you'll help us. Will you help us to be good to our core? To be so focused on the goodness of Jesus and following after that that the rules become not as important as the God that we serve that we can see the intent behind those rules of drawing us closer to you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, whom we confess not only of Lord of the Sabbath, but Lord of our lives. It's through him that we pray. Amen.